Hiatus edition of PFT Live and PFTPM, working our way closer and closer to the start of training camp. And you never know where the lightning bolt is going to come from. That news that was unexpected, but based on history, we come to expect it. Expect the unexpected when it comes to injuries. You never know who it's going to be, but you always know it's going to be someone. Now, usually it happens during camp or the preseason, but in this last sliver of time where players are trying to get themselves in, as you'll hear time and again, the best shape of their lives, accidents can happen. Cam Akers, the Rams running back, done for the year with a torn Achilles tendon. That is a huge blow to him and to the Rams offense because he had grown into a guy who was ready to become the centerpiece of the running game. Last year, it felt like the Rams wanted to mimic what the 49ers have been doing with multiple tailbacks in and out of the lineup, different plays, different guys, different drives, different featured backs. Cam Akers emerged over the course of the season as the guy who was ready to become basically their next Todd Gurley. And that's how it was looking going into this season. Now, Akers abruptly gone. They can look for some alternatives on the roster. They could try to sign a veteran. I know Todd Gurley's name immediately trending on Twitter. I don't think the Rams are going to be bringing him back. The Rams know that his knee limits his ability to be the tailback that they need him to be. There are some veterans out there like Adrian Peterson and Frank Gore. They could trade for someone. They could wait for guys to be cut. However it goes, this is a major blow for a Rams offense that was going to rely very, very heavily on Akers, who was ready to explode in year two as a potential star player in the National Football League. They still have Matthew Stafford. They still have a great core of pass catchers. Now they're going to have to deal with the sudden and unexpected loss of Cam Akers for all of the 2021 season. Just the first of what hopefully won't be many, but inevitably more injuries that will happen over the course of the next several weeks. And then once the games start, we know every week there will be someone or more than someone who is out for the year. And I think it's easier to process as a fan when it happens within the context of a game that counts toward the final standings. It's harder to deal with it when it happens in practice or in the preseason. And it's very hard for fans to process it when it occurs before training camp even begins. But all the best to Cam Akers as he recovers from that torn Achilles, and we'll see what the Rams do moving forward. There were some comments earlier on Tuesday from Seahawks receiver Tyler Lockett that I just want to mention briefly. He said that he expects Russell Wilson to be on the Seahawks for the foreseeable future. Now, I don't know what that means because really most football players don't foresee much of a future beyond the coming season because every season is kind of its own entity now in the National Football League. The teams change so much. There's never going to be another 2021 Seahawks. 2022, guys will be gone. New guys will come. Changes will be made, quite possibly to the coaching staff. And, and, and it's a new thing when the next season rolls around. So foreseeable future to me, as far as the NFL is concerned, foreseeable future is a year. And so in that respect, I agree with Tyler Lockett because I expect Russell Wilson to be the quarterback of the Seahawks for all of the 2021 season. After the season, what happens, I believe, is going to depend in large part on how this season goes. If it goes very well for the Seahawks, if they get back to the NFC Championship for the first time since 2014, and yes, it's been that long since they've been into the Final Four for the NFL, then maybe Russell Wilson signs up for another year. If they fail again to get beyond the wild card round or beyond the divisional round, we may hear some of the same things we heard directly from Wilson in February. 
and the things that came from his agent about the teams that he would accept to trade to. You know, Tyler Lockett tries to downplay all of this as the media looking for things to talk about during the slow time. First of all, it's not slow in February and March. There's plenty of other stuff happening. And when a guy's agent, a franchise quarterback's agent, one of the best quarterbacks in the game, one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game, comes out and says, well, my client doesn't want to be traded. But if he were to be traded, here are the four teams he'd accept the trade to. That's never happened before. That's news. That's not the media making something out of nothing. That's the media doing its job. When one of the newsmakers makes something, whether it was Wilson in his comments to Dan Patrick or Agent Mark Rogers in his comments to Adam Schefter, whatever the case, it's newsworthy. So don't blame us that it became a story. It became a story because Wilson wanted it to be a story. And for now, the hatchet has been buried, but that hatchet will be unburied if the Seahawks struggle in 2021, or at least if they struggle to achieve the kind of success that will help further cement Russell Wilson's legacy. This is year 10 for him. He's got one Super Bowl win, two Super Bowl appearances, and if he's not going to get more of them with the Seahawks, he is going to look for another team where he can get that kind of achievement on his resume. Aaron Rodgers, one Super Bowl appearance, one Super Bowl victory in his tenure. That came way back in 2010. The questions still linger about what he's going to do. Now, here is a story that isn't about Rodgers as much as it's about maybe some of the behind the scenes maneuvering from a PR standpoint. The story from Tuesday morning from Adam Schefter that Rodgers turned down during the offseason a contract offer that would have made him the highest paid player in the NFL. First of all, that's not new. And it's not uncommon for reporters to dust off old news and maybe add some little twist to it to, to justify making it a headline. But if Adam Schefter is being honest with himself and with the audience, he would admit that this is months old. This has been out there that during the conversations that occurred during the quiet time in the offseason before Rodgers made it known that he wanted out, the Packers had indeed offered him a contract that would have made him the highest paid player in football. But there continues to be a major gap when it comes to the information that's been reported. When you don't know the structure of the deal, it doesn't matter what the deal is worth. You put a couple of non-guaranteed years on the back end that bumped the average salary up over $45 million per year. Hey, he's the highest paid player in football. Well, yeah, but does it affect the fundamental problem that motivated all of this effort by Rodgers? And this goes back to January, and this is what we've said consistently. Rodgers no longer wants to be one year at a time employed by the Packers. He wants security. He wants to know he'll be there two or three years. So he doesn't have to worry about being supplanted by Jordan Love. If you give him a contract that has a bunch of non-guaranteed money that makes him more highly paid than Patrick Mahomes, but there's no guarantee he's going to be there to make that money, who cares? So the structure is the key. A contract that forces the Packers to keep Aaron Rodgers for 2021, 2022, and maybe 2023. That's what he wants. That's what, let me be more accurate. That's what he wanted. It may be that the ship has sailed. And if they would show up now and say, okay, Aaron, we'll give you what you wanted back in January or February. It could be that Aaron Rodgers will say, hey, look, you had your chance to do what you needed to do then. 
You jerked me around. You forced me to play this game. I didn't want to play this game. I just wanted to have a deal that made me know I was going to be here, that I was the guy, that you're as committed to me as I am to you. You didn't do it. You decided to go the hard way. And now I'm, I'm going the even harder way and I'm going to continue to persist in my desire to be traded. And I still think, and I, I said this yesterday, where did I say it? I think I said it on Dan Patrick's show. And some people have misinterpreted what I said. I'm not reporting that Rodgers is going to show up and that he's going to get traded before week one. I just could envision Rodgers showing up, the Packers, specifically CEO Mark Murphy, not being happy with that outcome. I think Murphy would prefer that Rodgers not show, then Rodgers becomes the villain in all of this. And the Packers, if Rodgers sits out the whole year, they, they can make more than $30 million back from Rodgers between salary that won't be paid, signing bonus that can be recovered, roster bonus that won't be paid, fines if they collect them. They're looking at more than $30 million if he chooses to boycott the whole year. If he shows up, it could be that the Packers finally soften in their stance that they're not going to trade him. This whole, we're not going to trade you, may be aimed at goading him into not showing up. If he shows up, they may say, you know, we're better off moving on. Do we really want this awkward final season with Aaron Rodgers where we constantly have to worry about what kind of verbal shots he's going to take while standing in front of his locker? I don't know that the Packers are going to want that if it comes to it. And that's why I think showing up could be the key to Rodgers ending up in what most likely at this point would be Denver for the 2021 season. I can't rule out anything. We've seen so many crazy things happen in the NFL over the years. How can you rule out any possible permutation or outcome of this Rogers drama. But the bottom line is this, today's report from Schefter is not new. And that news continues to be incomplete because we don't know the structure. And finally, this gets back to my original point. I think Schefter's doing somebody from the Packers a favor here because here we are six days away from the shareholder meeting. And I've pointed out, Mark Murphy is gonna face a hostile crowd. The Packers want it to be known that they've done everything in their power to get Rogers to stay. And the fact that Rogers is still upset doesn't reflect unreasonableness on their part. It reflects unreasonableness on his part. All right, Tony Busby, the lawyer who is representing the 22 individuals who are suing Deshaun Watts. And he had an interesting post on Instagram on Monday. Now, Busby, remember, back in March, very vocal, posting all the time, comments, observations, developments, inflammatory things about Deshaun Watson and the allegations that have been made against him regarding conduct during massage therapy sessions. Well, Busby had been quiet far more often than not since then. It continues to raise the possibility of a settlement before training camp. Busby had a message yesterday that I think makes it much more difficult to expect that these cases will be resolved before the Texans report to camp next week. Busby on his honeymoon with a gratuitous shot at Watson, explaining that Busby went to a spa and got a massage and then he deviated to discuss how he acted properly and didn't do any of the bizarre things that Watson is accused of doing. And it really felt unnecessary to me. And I think it does underscore that right now there's a level of acrimony that suggests these cases are indeed going to go forward. And the lingering question continues to be, will the league put Deshaun Watson on the commissioner exempt list? He has not been charged with a crime. It's 22 lawsuits. Is that enough to justify telling Watson you can't play this year, but you'll be paid and forcing the Texans to pay him to be on the commissioner exempt list. Whatever the outcome, I persist in my position that the NFL needs to let Watson and the Texans know now so everyone can make good decisions about Watson's future for 2021, including a team 
and may be interested in trading for Watson in the event that he's not going to be placed on paid leave, but would be playing under the cloud of these accusations. A lot of buzz yesterday from the comments made by Hall of Fame receiver Michael Irvin regarding the vaccine. And his logic is very simple. We've made this point in the past in a different sort of a way. I've argued that players will routinely take substances that help them be available to play without giving a second thought to the short-term or long-term consequences, whether it's a PED that could get them suspended, whether it's some sort of permissible supplement that could have long-term health complications. I mean, think of all the years where players took steroids, knowing that it had both short-term and long-term health effects, but they wanted to be available to play. With the vaccine, if you don't get it, you are at risk any given Sunday, every given Sunday, and every other day of the week of testing positive and not being available. You're not going to be available to your team. You're not going to be there for the pursuit of victories culminating in a chase for a championship. It's that simple. And that's Irvin's point. The players who are committed to winning will get the shot because it's a very basic linear thought process. Okay, not getting vaccinated means what? I get tested every day. If I'm ever positive on game day or the day before, I can't play. Don't want that. If I'm vaccinated, I only get tested every two weeks. And maybe there's a reduced chance I'm ever gonna get it. And I know that people who have gotten vaccinated have gotten COVID, but still you avoid that possibility you're gonna get tested on game day and get knocked out of the lineup just like that. So Irvin's attitude and his approach to this makes a lot of sense. The teams that are truly committed to doing what they have to do to win and they check all the boxes. There's a bunch of boxes to check if you wanna be a winning football team. One of the boxes is get vaccinated. It's that simple. And even with that mindset, which is accurate, there are still plenty of players out there. And also, as I've heard, plenty of coaches who are vehemently opposed to the vaccine. And it really is odd to think that in a sport that is so dominated by type A, triple positive personalities that just want to win, 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 win. This is something that gets in the way of winning. This is something that makes the process more difficult. This is something that creates a competitive disadvantage for the teams that don't have enough players vaccinated and a competitive advantage for those who do. It's amazing that that's not enough to bust through that wall. It just shows you how strongly held the belief is by those who don't want to be vaccinated that there's some sinister plot or unreasonable health effect or nanobots floating around in your bloodstream or whatever the case may be. And, and at this point, I don't think anything's gonna change anyone's mind. A Couple of others real quick before we wrap it up for today. I actually moved faster than I thought I was going to so I can slow down a little bit here. I wanna, I wanna take a minute or two to address the news that came out of the blue early yesterday evening, East Coast time, that Raiders president Mark Bedane has resigned. And it didn't come from him. It came from his boss, former boss, team owner, Mark Davis. And the circumstances, the way that it got out, it, it, it begs for more information and investigation. And it could be that part of whatever severance agreement was reached prevents Bedane from saying anything about it. It's just odd to me that on the brink of Allegiant Stadium opening up to fans and Bedane, who was chiefly responsible for navigating these very murky and treacherous waters 
that resulted in a team that could not get a new stadium in Oakland, finding a deal in Las Vegas, a great deal in Las Vegas, a deal that could make the Raiders the most valuable franchise in all of sports, given that location, that Bedane isn't even going to be there for the first game where it's a real game, where it's full and people can enjoy it. And it's the crowning achievement of the effort that he put into it. So it just makes people think something else is going on. And we'll see. We'll see. There's plenty of reporters out there, I am sure, who are scouring for any and all information about it, whether they cover the Raiders, whether they just cover the NFL generally, whether their, their angle is investigating matters like this. I, I'm not saying that there's anything there. I'm just saying there's reason to explore what the real story is because the circumstances suggest that, that, that this is unusual, that this is something that, that wasn't planned or wasn't expected. All right, let's answer a few questions before we wrap this up today. Got to find the tweet. Scrolling, scrolling. Had it ready, but accidentally closed my phone. Wait, here it is. Just a few questions. Let's see if there's, there's any actual questions instead of just some smart aleck remarks. How difficult will it be for an unvaccinated player to get through the season? That question comes from Tom Marshall, also known as at a red zone out, one of our most loyal listeners and followers for, for years now. I, I don't think it will be inordinately difficult for an unvaccinated player to get through the season, but as I already mentioned, you get tested every single day if you're not vaccinated. If you are vaccinated, you get tested once every two weeks. So unvaccinated player, constant risk that today is the day that, that he's going to be shut down. So it's going to be like last year for an unvaccinated player. And as the Delta variant spreads and as people have kind of let their guard down generally about the pandemic and don't seem to be inclined to put their guard back up, Maybe the risk is greater this year. Maybe people will be looser. Maybe there will be less of a degree of safety that we saw last year. And maybe of the unvaccinated players, there will be a higher percentage who test positive. But the, the best way to make yourself available in as many games as possible this year, clearly and undoubtedly, is to get vaccinated. But as I said, nothing is going to change the minds of those who are determined at this point to not get the jab. Donegan MJ, who gets the playoff buys and do they make it to the Super Bowl? Remember, there's now only one buy per conference, which means one fewer game that the one seed in each conference has to play. I think in the NFC, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have everything pointing in their favor to be the number one seed. And I understand that a certain amount of complacency can set in for a Super Bowl champion, but not with Tom Brady who is obsessed now with getting number eight. Now that he has seven, it's on to eight. Once he gets eight, it's on to nine. And when you look at the quality of the rest of the teams in the NFC, I don't know who can challenge them. Hey, the Saints may still be pretty good. After all, the Saints won the division last year. Maybe we're overlooking the Saints. Maybe they'll win the division again and the Buccaneers will have to do it the hard way like they did in 2020. The Rams thought they were going to be pretty good. Now this Cam Akers thing changes that outlook. And even so, they're caught in one of the toughest divisions in all of football. Maybe one of the toughest divisions we've ever seen. The 49ers could be really good. The Seahawks could be good. The Packers, if Aaron Rodgers shows up and plays like he did last year, could be really good. I think Washington is going to be better than we think. But I still think the Buccaneers have the best chance to emerge. If I had to pick one now, I'd say the Bucs is the one seed. AFC, I got no idea how it's going to go. Something I've pointed out before. Look at, the, look at that conference. Look at those divisions. The teams that are actual Super Bowl contenders, Buccaneers, not Buccaneers, wrong conference, Bills, Patriots, Ravens, Browns, Steelers, 
Titans, Colts, Chargers, Chiefs. And then if Rodgers would get traded to the Broncos, you add them to the list as well. So I have no idea who the number one seed is going to be in the AFC, but I think both one seeds clearly have an advantage when it comes to getting to the Super Bowl. Last year, we saw the one seed in the NFC lose in the NFC championship game, whereas the one seed in the AFC managed to hold serve in both games. But the, but the Chiefs didn't have it easy against the Browns. They had a little easier against the Bills, but uh, they got to the Super Bowl. And uh, look, will we see a Super Bowl rematch? Uh, it's easy to say that now because those are the two teams that got to the most recent Super Bowl. But this year especially, all the work, all the effort, all the talent, all the assessment, all the study, all the everything, the sweat, the blood, the tears that go into a season, especially in the AFC. It's going to come down to a lucky break, a lucky bounce, a bad call, or from the perspective of the team that benefits from it, a good call. It's going to be something screwy that, that I think provides the difference between the team that emerges as the one seed and the other teams that get to the playoffs. And I suspect there will be teams that could have made it to the Super Bowl that don't make it to the playoffs in the AFC. Forrest Edgewood, how many teams in the NFC West make the playoffs this year? At least two, maybe, maybe three. And, you know, Sims and I last year were toying with the idea that all four could make it. And now that there are three wild cards, it's entirely possible. I don't think it's highly likely, but it could happen. I'd say that, that at least two make it, at least two. And then injuries become a major factor in all of this. We've seen it already, as I've said multiple times now with Cam Akers. What other injuries are going to happen? That changes everything. That The injury angle makes irrelevant months of talk and assessment and predictions. And it seems like most years there is that one injury that just causes you to view a team differently and changes their fate dramatically. And that could happen to one of these NFC West teams. But if everyone stays healthy, I'd say at least two, possibly three. H.S. Micken, what's a successful season for the Patriots this year? I think getting back to the playoffs and winning a game or two in the postseason. I don't see any reason to think this team won't be much better than last year. They were 7-9, and nine, even with so little talent relative to past seasons. I think they're going to be good, and I think they will make it to the playoffs. And when it's single elimination time, they've got the coaching staff. They've got the experience, at least institutionally, to figure out how to win those games and not get freaked out in the moment like some teams do when they get to the playoffs for the first time. Off topic, PFTPM Posse, how's the grill going? Been grilling anything particularly good this summer? I've been trying to go a little healthier. Chicken instead of sausage. Steak, the leaner cuts. Trying to watch the cholesterol now that the clock is ticking toward the witching hour of 60. Grilled some asparagus last night. Excellent olive oil, salt, and pepper. Good for you. A negative calorie food. So uh, the, the grill is a magical device because even the foods that you otherwise would not eat, if you put them on the grill, they end up tasting pretty damn good after all. So uh, a lot of chicken this summer and probably some more chicken coming tonight. All right, let's see what else we got here. Last one, Lee Witt. What would be a successful season for the Jaguars? That, that's a great question. The Jaguars were 1-15 last year. Somehow beat the Colts to start the season and lost 15 in a row. Now you've got new coaching staff, a head coach with no NFL experience, Trevor Lawrence, rookie quarterback, a new GM in Trent Bauke, although he's been a GM before. I, I don't know. They're in a tough division with the Titans and the Colts. 
I could see them finishing in third place. I'd say if the Jaguars win at least six games, that is a highly successful season. And that lays the foundation for making the leap next year. I know every team wants to come into the year saying we have a chance to make the playoffs. And in theory, every team does. But for teams like the Jaguars and Jets, breaking in rookie quarterbacks, 6-11 and 11 sh- should be something that creates real hope for next year. And, that, and that's what the Jaguars have to do. I mean, uh, how quickly the Jaguars fell apart after being on the brink of the Super Bowl just a few years ago. They are truly building from scratch. And I think if you're a Jaguars fan, you just are looking for signs that this works, that Urban Meyer belongs in the NFL, that he's not going to burn out quickly like Nick Saban did, that he's going to be far closer to Jimmy Johnson than some of the other former college coaches who came to the NFL under high expectations, whether it's Greg Schiano, Chip Kelly, or someone else. This year is that test case. Is there enough evidence this year to make me think this is going to work? And if there is, maybe it starts working as soon as 2022. We'll keep working around the clock at profootballtalk.com for the rest of the day. We'll do this again tomorrow. Thanks, as always, for some of your time, and we'll talk to you again real soon.